Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. Obviously, I'm still hanging in there. Still feeling pretty good, or trying to. I'm writing this right around the winter solstice, which is a time of year that I love. I'd hoped to see the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, but even on the days that looked promising by evening, it's clouded over. Uh, So maybe I'll have better luck tonight. Um, And whether or not I see it with my own eyes, I am grateful for the internet because people in not so cloudy places have posted some amazing (laughs) pictures. Um, If you somehow missed this event, I do recommend looking it up because yeah, there are some awesome pictures out there. Anyway, today we have another completely undated comedy by Plautus. It's Aulularia, which you'll see translated as the little pot or the pot of gold. It's about a pot of gold. Shocking, I know. Um, and as with most of Plautus, I'm working from the Henry Thomas Riley translation. Um, there is a bit of a snag with Aulularia. It's incomplete in a similar way to how the Bacchides is incomplete. Um, You may recall that the Bacchides is missing the beginning. Aulularia has the opposite problem. It's missing the end. In his translation, Riley includes the ending that was written by Ukeus Kodrus around 1500 um, CE, so (laughs) several hundred years later, more, you know, a thousand years later, 1500 years after the original play was written, right? Anyway, I'll go into more detail on the lost ending in the analysis section of this episode. As we've frequently seen, the play is set in Athens, and we have our usual assortment of stock characters. Um, we have Lar Familiaris, the household god of our main character, Euclio, who is an old miser. His daughter, Phaedria, is important to the plot, even though she never appears on stage. Um, and honestly, I can't remember if she's actually ever called by name. Um, but she does get a couple of offstage lines. So, it, yeah, it's an interesting situation there. Which, again, we'll come back to in the analysis section. It's possible she was on stage in that lost ending. Um, anyway, our other family group consists of Lycanides, who is our young man. Uh, his uncle, Megadorus, who is a little bit of a Miles Gloriosus type. Um, there's... He's not technically a soldier, but he kind of has some of those characteristics. Um, and there's like Hanades' mother, Eunomia. On the slave end, we have Euclio's maid, Staphyla, Megadorus's servant, Strobilus, and Lycanides' servant, Pythodicus. Uh, um, and then there are a couple of cooks named Anthrax and Congrio. And Anthrax just seems like an interesting name um, for... <laughs> For a cook. Congrio actually makes sense if you think about a conger eel, congrio, conger eel. That that makes sense. Anyway, um, one brief note on that first character that I mentioned. Lar familiaris isn't a name. It's a title. Every home had a shrine to the family's god or gods um, in ancient Rome. Um, and so the Latin for the family god is Lar Familiaris. Um, so to, to draw from a completely different culture in a completely different part of the world, um, have you seen Disney's Mulan, the animated one? Um, I haven't seen the live action one. Uh, so I, but I, 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 from 
what I saw of the previews, I don't think this <laughs> reference works for the live action one. Anyway, the, the animated one. So you know how um, there is a shrine with the ancestors and the family guardians? Um, and that's specific to the Fa family, right? It's like that. The Lar Familiaris is whatever god or gods are specific to this family, to Euclio's family in this case. Um, so exactly which god <laughs> appears in this play? Uh, we don't know. It's up to the director to decide how specific to be in creating that character. Um, so that's all of the background that I have for this play. So we'll take a short break before going through the summary of the surviving portion. The play begins with the Lar Familiaris, the household god, providing the prologue. He introduces himself. He's been the household god for three generations now, and Grandpa, that first generation, entrusted this pot of gold to the household god. He hid it in the hearth, which is where the shrine to the household gods usually is, and he didn't tell anyone about it. He refused to tell even his own son where it was, and then he died. Um, and the son didn't worship the Lar Familiaris as much as the god would like, so the god decided not to reveal the gold to him, and the son died too. Now, the grandson, Euclio, lives in the house, and he's a lot like his dad and grandpa, but the difference is that he has a daughter. No sons, just one daughter. And she is pretty good at the whole worship thing. And because the Lar Familiaris likes her, he's decided that Euclio should find the pot of gold so that it can become the daughter's dowry. And she's going to need it. Because this play doesn't start with the happiest of circumstances. She's pregnant, and she doesn't know who the father is. Um, and I, I will come back to that topic later. Uh, the god has decided to do even more to help her, though. Um, the old man who lives next door is going to ask to marry her. And that old man just so happens to be the uncle of the young man who is responsible for her being pregnant in the first place. Before we can learn more, the god is interrupted by Euclio making an uproar and throwing his old maid out of the house. The god suspects this is because Euclio wants to check on the pot of gold, and he doesn't want the maid to see him do it. Euclio and Staphyla enter. Euclio is berating Staphyla, and she is confused about why he's being so mean to her. Euclio succeeds in throwing Staphyla out of the house. She bemoans her current state because Euclio's daughter is in labor, and now the young woman is all alone. Euclio re-enters. He is much calmer now that he's reassured himself that no one has touched his gold. He tells Staphyla she can go back inside now and tells her to lock up behind herself and let no one in. She asks how she should handle the neighbors who might need to borrow a cup of sugar or whatever, and he tells her to tell them that everything has been stolen. She goes back inside. Euclio tells the audience that he's nervous about leaving his gold alone in his house, but he has to go out. And then he exits towards the forum. Eunomia and Megadora center. Eunomia encourages her brother to get married. She even has a recommendation. Sure, she's not that young, but she's available. She hits the key criteria, female, female single, and breathing. Megadorus responds that he has another idea. Euclio, his neighbor, has a daughter, and she sounds like a much better wife than a woman who will be dead before she can give him children. And sure, she may be poor, but he still likes her. He would make 
Uh, she would make a wife, and so that works for Eunomia. Eunomia exits into Megadorus's house. Megadorus decides to go and ask Euclio for his daughter's hand. Euclio enters. Megadorus greets him. Euclio is concerned that his neighbor might be after his pot of gold, but once Megadorus says that he not only wants to marry his daughter, but that he's willing to pay for the wedding, and not just one wedding feast, but two, one at each of their houses, Euclio decides that this sounds fabulous. They agree to have the wedding that very day. Megadorus calls for Strobilus to follow him to the market, and he exits. Euclio is relieved that his gold is still safe. He calls her Staphyla, who enters. He tells her that his daughter is to be married to Megadorus that day. Staphyla protests that it's too soon, which Euclio doesn't understand because he still doesn't know that his daughter is pregnant. He tells Staphyla to keep the house secure while he goes shopping, and he exits. Staphyla bemoans the fact that her mistress's pregnancy is about to be discovered, and she exits back into the house. Strobilus enters along with the cooks, Anthrax, and Congrio. If you two are using the Riley translation, for some reason, Congrio's lines are ascribed to Lyconides, even though the stage directions clearly state that Congrio has entered, but Lyconides hasn't. Strobilus explains uh, that about the wedding, and the three discuss the quality, or lack thereof, of the cook's talent. Strobilus knocks on Euclio's door, and Staphyla enters. Strobilus explains that he's brought the cooks for the wedding feast, and Staphyla takes them into Euclio's house. Strobilus exits into Megadorus's house. Pythodicus enters from Megadorus's house, gives a brief monologue about how busy the cooks are, and then exits into Euclio's house to keep an eye on things. Euclio enters with the flowers for the wedding. He overhears the cooks talking about pots and assumes that they are referring to his pot of gold. He runs into the house. Anthrax enters. He gives some cooking instructions to offstage characters, and then he exits into Megadorus's house. Seriously, if you know anything about French bedroom farce, you can see where all of the entrances and exits of that theater style come from, because that is, it's on and off and on and off in this play. Uh, Congrio runs on stage, crying out about how the master of the house has gone crazy. All they've been trying to do is cook, but now he's chasing them outside, which is exactly what happens. (laughs) Euclio drives all of the cooks and random slaves outside before exiting back into his house. He returns shortly thereafter with his pot of gold hidden under his cloak. He tells everyone that they can go back inside, which they do. Euclio soliloquizes over how hard it is to keep his pot of gold safe. He sees Megadorus coming from the forum and hides close to his door. Megadorus enters, talking to himself about his pending marriage and how more men should be willing to marry girls with no dowry, because that way a wife must be dependent on her husband. She has no money of her own. So, yeah, you know, he starts out great with the whole, why are people so worried about how much money a girl has? But it it goes downhill quickly. Euclio overhears and likes what he hears, but he still isn't convinced that Megadorus doesn't know about the pot of gold. Eventually, Megadorus realizes that his neighbor's also on stage, and they chat for a bit before Megadorus exits into his house to get ready for his wedding. Euclio exits to the Temple of Faith to hide his pot of gold there. The next character to enter all depends on your translation. Riley thinks that this is Strobilus, whom we've already met. Another of my sources says that it's Pythodicus, Lyconides' slave. Um, In a footnote to Riley's translation, it appears that some translations think it's Lyconides' slave, 
who also happens to be named Strobilus, but it's not the same Strobilus. Uh, so there are two different slaves with the same name in the same play. Um, Riley argues that since Lycanides and Eunomia are living with Megadorus, that his slaves are their slaves. So it's the Strobilus we've already met. Um, so clearly, who knows? Some slave who works for Lycanides enters. So Strobilus or Pythodicus enters. Lycanides has sent him to spy on the situation because over the past nine months, he's decided he's in love with the girl, and now we'll get to the fun part, that he raped, and now his uncle is going to marry. And the slave hides behind the altar. Euclio enters, speaking of how he has hidden his pot of gold in the temple before exiting into his house. The slave, Strobilus, or Pythodicus, overhears this and announces his intention to go and liberate the pot of gold from the temple. Before he gets his chance, Euclio returns because he thought he heard something. He finds the slave hiding behind the altar and, accuse, and accuses him of stealing the pot of gold. It takes a bit, but Euclio is ultimately convinced that the slave's hands are empty. Um, and it's one of those funny lines of basically all three of his hands. And he's like, well, is it in your right hand? What, you know, is it in this hand? What about your other hand? Um, so it, it's amusing. Um, we'll get to this. It's the framing device of the story that is disturbing. Anyway, um... So uh, Euclio exits back into the temple, and the slave hides so that he can spy on Euclio's next actions. Euclio enters with his pot of gold, which he's now decided to hide in the grove of Silvanus, and he exits. And so the slave comes out of his hiding place and giddily announces his plan to steal the pot of gold. He exits after Euclio. Lycanides and Eunomia enter. This time... It really is Lycanides. He's finally told his mom about what he did nine months ago, and we finally hear Phaedria's voice calling out to Juno for help as she gives birth, which Lycanides offers up as proof of what he did and why he and not his uncle should be the one to marry Phaedria. Eunomia agrees. She exits into Megadorus's house. Lycanides comments on how his slave was supposed to be keeping watch before he follows her inside. The slave, Strobilus or Pythodicus, enters with the pot of gold. He proclaims his success before he exits into Megadorus' house. Euclio enters, throwing an absolute fit over his lost pot of gold. Lycanides enters and is sure that he's upset because his daughter just had a surprise baby. He confesses what he did, which means a bit of confusion because Euclio is talking about his gold and Lycanides is talking about Phaedria, but eventually Euclio catches up and realizes that he's a lousy father. He exits into his house to confirm Lycanides' story. Lycanides prepares to follow him, but Strobilus or Pythodicus enters. He tells Lycanides about the pot of gold and announces that he wishes to use it to buy his freedom. Since Lycanides is about to marry the daughter of the original owner of the gold, he commands the slave to return the stolen goods. The slave says that he'll only return it over his dead body. And that is where the original text breaks. <laughs> and that, that is all of the play that we have. If you're reading the Riley translation, it does include a later edition to conclude the play. But since that isn't Plautus, I'm not going to include it here. I'll talk some more about this lost ending after we take a short break. All right, before I get to how messed up this play is, let's start with that ending. 
we know that we're missing some final scenes. Um, and we have an idea of what happened with that ending because of something I haven't talked about in any of these Plautus episodes. If you've been reading along, you may have noticed that each play begins with an acrostic argument. In case you've forgotten, an acrostic is a riddle or poem or something in which the first letter of each line spells out a word. Um, and in this case, each acrostic is a summary of the play that spells out the title of the play. Uh, Plautus didn't write them, which is why I haven't really mentioned them. Um, but in the case of this play with its lost ending, the acrostic argument is pretty useful. So we know that Euclio agrees to the marriage of Lycanides and Phaedria, which is no surprise. Um, but then he also gives the pot of gold to them as, I don't know, their wedding present or perhaps as a dowry. Um, that's not clear. Um, so Plautus's plays are divided into five acts, much like Shakespeare's plays are. So it's a, not necessarily something that the playwright wrote into them, but that um, as things were transcribed, that it, it came to be a set five acts. Um, and the play breaks off in act five. So there isn't a lot of the play left to go. Most of the play has survived, which is why I've included it here. Um, but there's still a huge turn of events in Act 5 that happens with the character of Euclio. Um, what we're missing is his motivation for giving away the pot of gold that he has spent the entire play trying to hide from everyone. So if you're reading along, you may have read a conclusion to this play, um, but that's one man's interpretation of the acrostic argument and five fragmentary lines that comprise the last, comprise the last ending of the play. So what we have is is this poem that somebody wrote later and five lines that Plautus wrote. Um, so the key things that we know must happen in order for the plot to work is that Euclio gets the pot of gold back and Euclio approves of the marriage and then he gives the pot of gold away. That's it. So a director could choose to use the ending that was written around 1500 or they could come up with their own ending. Um, in the references for this episode, you'll see a production done at St. Olaf College in 2009. Um, and the way they handled it, they addressed the missing ending by having the Lar Familiaris provide an epilogue, much the way that character provided the prologue. All right, on to what we do have of this play. Today's stock character is the Miser. Um, if this play seems at all familiar to you, that might be because you're familiar with Moliere's play by that very title, The Miser. Um, guess what Moliere used as source material? <gasps> Did you guess this play? You'd be right. <laughs> Euclio is an example of a stock character that we really haven't spent much time with, um, which is The Miser. Um, but the miser that he makes me think of is Shylock from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Um, now, these two plays do not have very much in common, and Shylock and Euclio are two very different characters. Um, so it's not so much the actual Shylock you encounter in the Merchant of Venice that, that Euclio reminds me of. It's the stereotype of him. Um, you know, if you're told, oh, what does Shylock say? You probably go, oh, he's the one that goes, my daughter, my ducats, my daughter, my ducats, because he can't decide which is more important to him which I will point out is something that if you read The Merchant of Venice, 
Shylock never actually does in the play. It is something that people say about him, but not something that we, the audience, ever see. It's a stereotype. Um, anyway, but even though Shylock never, <laughs> we never see Shylock doing that, I could totally see you, Clio, going around going, my pot of gold, my daughter, my pot of gold, my daughter. Um, but it's, and it's the daughter thing that, that made me think of Shylock. Um, because both Shylock and Euclio are clueless about their daughters. Um, and that brings me <laughs> to how the play starts. And there is no getting around the actual relationship between Lyconides and Phaedria. She is pregnant. Um, content warning <laughs> uh, coming up. If you have small children as you're listening to this, uh, you might be prepared to talk about some heavy topics. She is pregnant because she was raped. And she doesn't know who did it. Now, is this because she was unconscious and only knows that she was raped because she's pregnant? Or is it because he was a stranger to her and she's never seen him again even though he lives next door? Now, the latter is possible if she spends much of her life sequestered in her house. Um, and it's a really Megadorus's house, so if Lyconides is kind of new to town, she it's possible that the only time she has ever seen him was nine months ago. Um, I would say that is preferable, but it isn't. Either reason is equally messed up. Um, and whatever the situation is, in the conclusion of this play, she is still basically being forced to marry the man who raped her. Um, and without this fact underlying the play, it would be so much more lighthearted. Um, I mean, sure, it would still be totally, totally sexist and totally classist, but, but that's that's not that's not all that we have. Um, and we've seen that there are a lot of messed up storylines in Plautus's plays. Um, but this this one is messed up enough that it's hard to hard to think of it as a comedy, um, and it, and it is where we see some of that. Our definitions of comedy and tragedy are not the same as the ancients' definitions of comedy and tragedy, because there's a lot of Phaedria that is really, in many ways, a tragic character. Um, so yeah, this one's this one's bad. So, what do you think? How would you handle the ending that we don't have, or even the beginning? How would you handle the the story before the play begins? Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can also find me on Patreon as triumvirclio. The URL for my Patreon page is in the show notes too. On Wednesday, we will read book 21 of the Odyssey. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.